0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Arthur Asraf, the author of Electric News in Colonial Algeria, and the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Hi there, Arthur.
1: Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work on colonial Algeria?
1: So, I'm French. Uh I grew up in near Paris and my parents are French. And I suppose I got interested in this topic for uh several reasons. The first was that it was increasingly present as a discussion around me in France when I was uh, growing up, especially after 2005 uh, and the riots in the banlieues, there started to be a very big political conversation about um, the legacies of colonialism and especially of the Algerian War. And it seemed very important and like it wasn't discussed uh, in school as much. Mm-hmm. So I started having a lot of questions about what this past meant. And then at the same time, uh, my dad's family is is from North Africa and my grandmother would tell all sorts of stories that, frankly, were baffling to me. And so I started to, to, to wonder what this world was like. But this was a kind of gradual process. Um, and so in my undergraduate degree, I went to the UK. I studied history. I did a master's. But I didn't really think I wanted to specialize on North Africa or the French empire because I kind of wanted to, in some ways, explore new things. What started happening, I think, is that at the same time, there started to be a huge expansion of scholarship Mm -hmm. on Algerian history uh, in French, uh, in Arabic, but especially in English. There was a really big development after 9-11, after the Iraq war, and after it became easier to go to Algeria and to do research. And at that point, I guess I realized that um, there was actually a, a lot of work being done on the Algerian war. And maybe the war itself did not explain everything, and it might be more interesting to go back a bit
0: Arthur, there have been a couple of people who I've interviewed over the years who are French, who've gone from France to the UK. And and you finished, like you did all your studies in the UK? Uh,
1: yes, I briefly in the States, but basically all of my studies in the UK.
0: I'm trying to think of who was the last person I asked this question. I think it was Ludivine Procq who I asked about this. Like, oh, yeah. What that decision was about, but also, and in her case, we were talking about Vichy and the Holocaust, like what it meant to do work on in your case, colonial Algeria, in the UK as opposed to doing it in France? And yeah, what what you think about that as a scholar of Algeria, of France at some level, and also French, but then did this work sort of outside of France?
1: Yeah, I guess there are advantages and disadvantages hmm. to being in the UK for this kind of work. The advantages are that this is not a politically saturated topic in the UK, so I can say what I want. right. And the problem is whenever I go back home to France, everybody has an opinion right. about these things. You know, yeah. I can, every time I get into a taxi or I, I bump into somebody at a friend's house, they ask me, what do you work on? Oh, I work on Algerian history. Oh, well, my uncle did this and yeah. my grandmother was, <laughs> you know, everybody yeah. is involved in this history somehow and they think they know something about it, which is interesting, but it can be a bit stifling. Right in the UK, this is not a problem. On the other hand, people literally do not know where Algeria is. So I often have to you know, explain that it's not Nigeria, that it's not Armenia, and convince people that it's important.
0: Mm.
1: Now that can be difficult, but I actually think it's kind of led me to write it in a way that's different from what I would have had to write in France. Because when I write about Algeria here, I'm thinking, okay, well, if you're a historian um, who doesn't you know, work on France, how am I going to convince you that this is relevant? And, and in, making that effort is actually intellectually quite productive.
0: So Arthur, the subject of the book is the circulation of news in colonial Algeria from 1881 to 1940. Do you want to say a little bit about how you settled on or came to the question of news?
1: Sure. The interest in news came, I have to say, relatively late in the project. Hmm. Originally, it wasn't really about news. At a moment where there was a lot of uh, global history being done, there was a kind of turn to global history, especially uh, when I was doing my PhD in in, in Oxford. So I wanted to mit- to find. Uh, Algerians and make them global. Mm. So I wanted to show Algerians moving around, make them look kind of cosmopolitan and sophisticated, which is what people have done with, with uh, some uh, other colonial subjects in other places. Uh, but as I progressed, I realized that this project was, was a bit naive because, of course, some Algerians under colonialism did move around and they did participate in global intellectual debates and they were very interesting. But what do you get when you focus on the small group of people? Um, in some ways, it was sort of missing the point because under settler colonialism, most Algerians could not move. So their particular experience of globalization as it occurred in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was one of restricted mobility. So I was making assumptions about what it meant to be global and what made for valuable historical research, which is people who move around and have very interesting lives. Mm. And in a way, it, wasn't, it was a kind of disjuncture between that and the place that I was looking at. So increasingly, I became interested in the role of media as a way of seeing how those who did not move Mm -hmm. experienced the world. And from that, that's where I started to become interested in in news. And in particular, uh, I realized that news was poorly theorized Mm -hmm. uh, as a concept, but that it's quite interesting to look at a colonial society because uh, by definition, at least in English, news has to be news. So it has to do with your concept of time and what you think is recent and relevant. Right. And what is news to one person is not necessarily what is news to another. So then it led me to this question of, well, this is a place where there are very different kinds of people living side by side. Do they experience events in the same way at the same time?
0: You use this phrase that you know this project is about taking a kind of bigger picture view of A broad news ecosystem. Could you say a little bit about what the use of ecosystem and the notion of a news ecosystem means for you and how you're using it in this project?
1: So this is where the distinction between working on a single medium, like say a newspaper or the radio, and working on an ecosystem of news is very, very different. I started looking at a lot of newspapers and a lot of people often ask me, oh, so you work on newspapers, you work on the press. Yes, I I write about newspapers but the problem in a society like colonial Algeria is that most people cannot read the newspapers. Mm. So the newspaper is giving you a very limited insight into news circulation. It's an important one, but it's not the only one. Much like some scholars of early modern Europe, particularly early modern France, if we're thinking about Robert Darnton, have shown, written and oral forms of information are very tightly interconnected. Mm-hmm. So what becomes interesting. Is tracking the circulation of a particular story through multiple different media in what I call, but some other people have called as well, an ecosystem, Mm -hmm. and how these different forms of circulation feed off each other.
0: You make this point in the introduction to the book that you were sort of coming at the question of news in colonial Algeria with, with a critique, I guess, of the Eurocentrism and presentism of much of the existing scholarship. You mentioned earlier that you were t- trying to bring Algerians, make them global, right? Um, so what is that relationship between that project of making Algerians global or thinking about Al- Algerians as global and your critique of existing scholarship on the news and, and media? So
1: I think a lot of the more interesting scholarship on information circulation has been on the in the early modern period, particularly mm-hmm. in Europe because there are people who have looked at you know, different kinds of rumors and songs and print kind of coexisting. And um, once you hit about you know, 1800, this kind of disappears because you get a whole different body of scholarship on uh, much more technologically sophisticated forms of mass media based on the telegraph and then on other kinds of electronic technologies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the problem with those is that you can kind of get seduced by the technology into thinking that they do actually create these huge mass audiences and that it changes everything. Mm -hmm. The thing, if you look at a colonial society and Algeria is one of them, but it's not the only one, is that when you look closely at what's going on, the arrival of these, these new forms of mass media don't necessarily create a disruption immediately or the disruption that they create is rather strange to describe. I am talking about a society where people kept on writing manuscripts in the 20th century. The arrival of print did not displace manuscripts in Algeria. I'm talking about a society where most people couldn't read, so they sang songs, even though there were newspapers around them. Mm-hmm. And this was happening in the 20th century as well. And the problem is that for people based in uh, European history, they assume that all of these things disappeared a long time in the past. And so that much of, this, uh, much of these techniques are anachronistic. Um, that they're traditional, that they kind of survive uh, as part of the, you know, backwards nature of these societies. Um, And my aim is not to show that they're particularly progressive and that rumors are efficient, but more to try and describe how you can have a society where all of these things are present at the same time. They all form part of the same ecosystem. And this makes understanding how it works uh, in my opinion, much more interesting, because what it means is that we have to rethink the way in which uh, new technologies change our media environment and change our social
0: practices. Let's talk a little bit, Arthur, about this colonial Algeria that is the subject of the book. So um, if you could just situate us in this conversation and our listeners um, in terms of the society that that we've referred to a few uh, a few times already. And maybe in particular, the framing here, chronologically, the, the period that you're covering in the book from 1881 to 1940.
1: So Algeria is uh, in North Africa, as I'm saying, you always, always have to place something right. <laughs> It's not Armenia, it's not Nigeria. It is conquered uh, by the French in a very long and messy process starting in 1830. And it is made into a part of France starting in 1848. So the territory is French. Um, if you're European, that is what settlers in Algeria are called. They're called Europeans legally. Uh, sometimes they're originally from France. Sometimes they come from Spain or from Italy or from Malta or from other places. That's mm-hmm. actually more common. So they constitute a minority Uh, That's about 10% of the population, depending on the period. And then the vast majority of the Algerian population are known as Algerian Muslims. And Muslim is a technical term Mm -hmm. in French law, and it doesn't necessarily mean that people are actually practicing Muslims, but it means it's a sort of racial category. And those people do not enjoy the rights of French citizenship. Algerian Jews are a slightly specific category because They In the beginning of the colonial period, they are classified as natives along with Muslims, and in 1870, they are naturalized uh, as French citizens. So in the period I'm talking about, they are French citizens and they're sort of counted along with the Europeans, although in a slightly distinctive way. So when I say uh, a colonial society, I mean really a society that is fundamentally organized along this split between these two groups. And that is how all of the state institutions are built. The period in particular that I'm interested in is not the conquest, which is a period of great uncertainty mm-hmm. um, and, and overt violence that really only ends in the 1870s, but a period of a kind of normalization under the, the French Third Republic, a regime that starts in 1871, but that only really gets stabilized in the 1880s. 1881 is the date in which the French Parliament passes a law on the indigénat which is a specific system of exceptional justice that is intended uh, for Algerian Muslims, and which basically says that there are specific regulations that apply to them that are beyond the normal legal system uh, that applies to French citizens. The same parliament in the same month passes a very famous French law, uh, which is still in effect today, which is the Loi sur la Liberté de la Presse, the Law and the Freedom of the Press, mm-hmm. which gives France one of the most liberal press regimes in the world at the time, where it is very difficult to censor newspapers. Now, what's interesting is that that law only applies to uh, French citizens and therefore in Algeria to settlers. And it's explicit, actually, in the way the law is written, that it should apply in Algeria and that it should only apply to those people. So the moment that I'm interested in is a moment where... Europeans in Algeria are undergoing lots of the processes that we would associate with classical modernity, Uh, mass male Mm -hmm. suffrage, mass media. Virtually the entire European population becomes literate by the turn of the 20th century, and they participate in the political structures of the French Republic, just like people in metropolitan France. By contrast, Muslim Algerians do not, and so the divide between those two populations Uh, only become stronger than than ever before. The other reason why I'm interested in this period is because this is a relatively stable period in which there's not that much uh, happening in Algeria compared to what's happening elsewhere in the world. So what this means is that Algerians are experiencing all of these developments, for instance, all of these new colonial conquests that are happening. And the news of this comes in this colony, which is by then relatively old by the standards of the French Mm -hmm. colonial empire. And then the end point nineteen forty, is because it became uh, complicated, complicated towards the end of the project, because the the last phase, the Algerian war um, and and the years preceding it is, are so intense in terms of events, and the administration dramatically increases so the amount of paperwork and of sources to read is huge. But mostly, I felt like that period had been quite extensively covered, not in terms of information circulation or news. I think you asked me, compared to previous works on news circulation in Algeria, there aren't really that many. I mean, there are are some really interesting studies. There's really, really interesting work by Julia Clancy Smith on rumors uh, in the 19th century in a very particular place or on cafes. There's a great thesis in French on The Telegraph. We have sort of specific uh, studies that, that were really useful in the way I was developing my project, but I can't really say that I'm speaking to a very developed historiography.
0: So Arthur, electric, Mm. it's so exciting to me how you're using this word, (laughs) this idea, both to refer to technological changes in what is, at some level, a history of technology here, uh, technologies of information, at the very Mm -hmm. least, and, and others as well. But then also you're using this term sort of metaphorically and conceptually to think about how news works. And to think against, I guess, some previous ways of thinking about the movement of information and the ways that populations are excited, infused, galvanized, uh, moved to nationalism, some of these kinds of things. So can you tell us a little bit about electric and why and how that's the key word of this project?
1: Sure. So the news becomes electric in this period. In a very literal, physical sense, because of the electric telegraph, which is a a really iconic technology of the 19th century that gives people at the time the impression that everything is changing, uh, that information can move so fast that it's dematerialized, that it can cross incredible distances very fast. So it's literally electric in that sense. But it's also electric in a, a a more metaphorical sense, and this is my sort of metaphor that this is a, a the acceleration of this news polarizes people. What happens with Algeria is that the more Algeria becomes plugged in to the rest of world news, the more uh, the division increases between the Muslim majority and and the settler minority, or at least that those two mm-hmm. processes are connected to each other. So what we see is that this globalization and this increase of circulation also produces more and more friction and tension. And I think this is a very important corrective, though I'm not uh, by, by any means the only person who said this. We have this assumption that the more things get connected, the smoother they become and people just get along. If only people mm-hmm. knew more about each other. If only people, you know, watch the news more. Or if we just had, if everybody had access to the internet, there would be world peace. You know, this is what some people thought around <laughs> you know, in the 1990s. We all thought that once we would all have connection to the right. internet, you know, that's it. You know, there would be no more world conflict. In a way, what this kind of society shows is is the, the really troubling fact that that's not how it works. Right. The fact is, in Algeria, in the period that I'm looking at, we get an incredible amount of riots and disturbances when news comes in because the existing society is so polarized that then when this information comes in, it's quite literally explosive.
0: Arthur, I want to ask you about Benedict Anderson. And I don't know when I want to ask you about him because (laughs) I feel like once we start talking about Benedict Anderson, we're never going to stop. You made me want to go back and read Imagine Communities again which no one has done in a very long time. (laughs) So there's so much in this book that speaks to that very important critiques, notwithstanding, you know, that framework that people have been operating with for however long it is now in terms of thinking about things through print capitalism, thinking about the relationship between media and nationalism. Do you want to say something sort of broadly about how you see the book as a Maybe corrective isn't the right word, but as a response to that kind of framework, how you're pushing its limits and questioning it in various ways. I think
1: that lots of people use Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities nowadays without necessarily having read it very closely. Partly it's because it's quite a strange book. It's a book that Anderson wrote quite fast, and it's quite funny at times. Mm-hmm. And it was written in as part of very particular debates that he was having with with his colleagues and his friends at the time. And he himself, uh, later in life said that actually he didn't really believe in in some of the arguments that he'd made earlier on. So I don't feel too bad kind of criticizing him for, for this.
2: Because <laughs> sure. I know
1: that he turned against some of it later. So I'm I think we've reached a point where we need to to move beyond this. It's not that it's wrong or not useful, but it's, it's, it's been a while and it's so normative. I mean, in my experience, it's the one book that all history undergrads at least end up sort of knowing the title of, uh, you know, we, we, we can't have an argument or a consensus about anything else, but we all know that nations are imagined communities. I don't have a problem with the concept of an imagined community. Mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense. What I have a problem with is, one, the idea that nations and nationalism become, in the modern period, inevitably the main form or the only form of imagined community, if you read the book, because of particular media. That I don't think works, because it assumes that, in Anderson's argument, lots of other forms of imagined communities, like, say, religious communities, disappear, which I think we now know is empirically not the case. Mm -hmm. And secondly, that the development of certain kinds of media uh, predetermines the formation of national communities which is absolutely not the case so the problem becomes if the one of the essential ingredients let's say in the formation of nationalism is print capitalism how come you can get a society where there are lots and lots of newspapers but nobody ever reads them and they don't make any money, which is essentially how it works in Algeria. (laughs) How can you get the development of mass nationalist movements in societies where most people can't read? And how can you get the same newspaper read in completely different ways by people depending on the community to which they belong? And that's what becomes more interesting When you start thinking about the news ecosystem and about news, because news has its own temporality that's not necessarily uh, the kind of flat, uh, homogenous time that Anderson is talking about, borrowing it from Walter Benjamin. And so then you have to reconsider this world in a different way. And what I think what this allows us to do is understand better a world where sure, nationalism exists and becomes very important, but it's actually not the only game in town. Mm -hmm. And therefore a world that might look a bit more like our own.
0: So Arthur, just as when I came to the book, I thought I knew what news was, I guess I could also have made some assumptions and did about what, your, what you'd be looking at in the book, what your sources would be. So could you talk a little bit about the kinds of materials you're working with in this project, what the relationship of what you're doing here is to something that we might call a history of the media or a history of journalism or of, of newspapers and reporting and that kind of thing?
1: Most of my sources are surveillance reports. That's the very short mm. uh, answer. And that's something that, in, that lots of people in French history have done extremely well, usually for earlier periods. But if you're thinking about Robert Darnton or Alain Farge, using the, the police reports to get to uh, the voices of people who can't write themselves. And when, when do they get captured in the archive when there's some kind of trouble going on? So I mainly use surveillance reports, particularly around particular incidents, because that's when they're the richest. And that's when you find out uh, things that are not in the newspapers. So I do use newspapers and and I'm interested in the development of journalism in Algeria. The problem with newspapers is that they're very good at making themselves look very important. (laughs) And there's tons of newspapers that are published in colonial Algeria once you dive into those, you keep forgetting that around 80-85% of the population cannot read. Right. So there's a problem of perspective. If you zoom in to the newspapers, you lose track of everything else. The interesting thing about the French surveillance process is that they captured lots of things. So you'll get in the archives, lots of quite strange documents. For instance, a manuscript, that that I talk about in one of the chapters, you know, you get these entire kind of chronicles in Arabic that were seized by the French and, and put in there, uh, songs that are sometimes uh, recorded. And the aim is not to say that those are more interesting or more real than the newspapers, but it becomes very interesting when you start putting all of those together, particularly when they describe the same event and showing the differences between them. One of the problems is that because news is by definition ephemeral, a lot of the ways in which news circulated were not intended to be preserved and have not survived. Mm. So sometimes the songs or the rumors are recorded in surveillance reports, but in some ways that's quite unusual. And we don't know that much about how it worked on on a daily basis. And even things like the telegrams that people sent at the time, I don't know if you've ever looked at at these in archives, you know, they're, they're copied on this kind of calc paper and the paper, Mm. um, has a very limited existence and the ink burns through the paper. So sometimes you pick them up and they kind of fall apart in your hands, which is quite a, a, an evocative testimony to the fact that these were not meant to be, to last
0: The first chapter of the book, Arthur, Magical Printing, covers, well, a century really of what you refer to as the civilization of the newspaper in Algeria. So can you give us a sense of the highlights of that chapter and the way that you're exploring the relationship between colonialism and, well, I guess the introduction of the printing press in this period?
1: Printing comes to Algeria with the arrival of the French in 1830. So it's quite closely associated to colonialism. And the interesting thing is that for a long time, the French uh, try and print lots of things intended for Algerians, and there's very little take up of those publications. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting because it of challenges the belief, which is a belief that the French have, that if you print, modernity will happen. And it doesn't work out like that. It turns out you can print and nobody's interested in reading it or they're not interested in printing themselves. And the French authorities find this baffling that Algerians are not more interested in print, at least at the beginning. According to the ideas of people in the 19th century, print is what caused the Renaissance. Print is what caused the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Print is what caused, you know, European modernity to occur so so why is this not happening here so the chapter kind of tracks this puzzle and the development of the newspaper industry in algeria what ends up happening is that the amount of newspaper of newspapers is very closely correlated to the amount of settlers and the more the settler population increases the more you get newspapers by the turn of the 20th century, this reaches absolutely dramatic proportions. You get nearly 200 different newspapers. For a population of settlers, that's about half a million. So that's a lot of newspapers. per wow. uh, people, it's actually more than in metropolitan France at the time. So French Algerians are very, very fond of consuming newspapers, and they publish <laughs> a huge amount of them. And they have very, very vicious debates between each other because the political context is very fragmented. By contrast, the vast majority of the population of Muslim Algerians There is no daily newspaper for Muslims in Algeria until independence in 1962. That is actually quite an astonishing fact. When you consider that in Tunisia, which is much smaller and next door, you have lots of newspapers at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I make the argument that this is connected to the structure of settler colonialism, that perhaps the amount of French newspapers makes it more difficult for Algerians to publish uh, their own newspapers and what there is very robust evidence of that has not really been discussed is the fact that Algerians read French newspapers that are not intended for them. The kinds of Algerians who can do this, it's a very particular demographic. These are men, almost inevitably, They who have know how to read French. There's very, very few of them. By the 1930s, about 2% of uh, Algerian males can read French, more can speak it. But, mm. but if you have one person in a town who can read French, it plays an extremely strategic role. So what you start getting is people taking newspapers to a cafe, and in particular to the cafe mot, the cafes where Muslim men socialize, and reading them out loud, and then they comment them. What this means is that most of the information that circulates in colonial Algeria does circulate through French newspapers, but they're used in very indirect ways. And what this means is that the interpretation of them has very little to do sometimes with what the authors who wrote the articles in those newspapers intended. So, the way in which the newspaper is assumed to operate by French authorities as a civilizing tool that is going to make Algerians modern and pliable to French colonialism, and the way in which they actually operate, which it involves Algerians kind of eavesdropping on European signals, uh, pillaging, this information, mm. and then using it for their own uses is completely different.
0: So the second chapter of the book, Arthur, it's my favorite chapter title,
2: Arab <laughs> Telephone,
0: Pan-Islamism and the Telegraph, 1897 to 1914. You can explain why I think that's so- uh, Well,
1: I'm going to assume. So the ex- there's an expression in French, uh, when you say Telephone arabe, it means that uh, somebody has uh, repeated something to somebody else and then that the message has gotten distorted. The idea is that it's Arab because it's broken, right? So, haha, it's funny. Uh, it's actually quite a racist expression, but it's not recognized yes. as such in, in France. It's it's a very common expression in France now. The origins of it are, uh, are in Algeria. We don't know exactly when it actually comes uh, to being. But it has to do with this very widespread colonial stereotype that Arabs by which they mean Algerians, distort information that they're incapable of transmitting it properly. And so that you have Mm. all of these beautiful French modern technologies and that all that the Arabs do is kind of disrupt
2: them. slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
0: So how does that, well, how does that work as a, as a point of entry into thinking about the circulation of news in all of these different forms and around the telegraph in this period in Algeria?
1: So the reason why I use this expression to describe the effect of the telegraph is because the French government sets up the telegraph infrastructure in Algeria in order to bring Algeria closer to France. Telegraph is developed uh, in Algeria in the mid-19th century, uh, first only within Algeria. So to connect different parts of Algeria and particularly different pockets of settlement, because this is a very vast territory where there are not that many French people and stretched thin. What's interesting is that starting in 1870-71, we get the first underwater sea cables between France and Algeria. And if you look at a map of the World Telegraph uh, network in the late 19th century, the density of direct cables across the Mediterranean between France and Algeria is quite unusual. Mm. And you can see that this was of extreme strategic importance to the French government in order to maintain communications with what is basically the other side of France on the other side of the Mediterranean. This has a number of very important effects. It means that you can communicate important information to Algeria within a matter of minutes and not within two days, which was previously the time that it took by a boat between Marseille and, and Algiers. So this has all sorts of effects, and it means that Algeria can become part of France in a much more tangible way than before. Mm. But what is surprising is that this is not the effect that the telegraph has, a bit like with print. The example that I take in the chapter is one of a disturbance that erupted in a village in Gabilly in 1897 around the Ottoman Greek war. What happened is that people in the village starting agitated against the local French settlers because they said that the Turkish sultan, so the Ottoman sultan in Istanbul, had defeated the Greeks, who are Christians, and so that it was the time of the Christians had ended, and that it was time for them to take matters into their own hand. And what's interesting about that is that if you read the police investigation around this case, it becomes clear that the way in which they got this news was from a French newspaper. This one man in the village who was the secretary for the the local administration who could read French and Arabic and presumably could also speak rumor, he got this newspaper from a retired soldier and he read it out loud and he gave his own interpretation of it. So this very subversive news about a possibility of insurrection, about uh, power of Muslims against Uh, Christians. And so the end of colonialism, I mean, people started occupying in that village, the land of the European farmers, you know, this was like a really kind of pre-insurrectionary moment, Mm
0: -hmm. came
1: from a French newspaper. And so it came from the French telegraph cables, ultimately. So the way in which the cables are built and their, their ultimate effect is completely different.
0: Yeah. It's one of the things that I find so compelling about the book is all the different ways throughout the different chapters that you show how The colonial state has these intentions and then there are these unintended consequences and leaks like they have these papers that they think that only settlers are going to read and the, the news from them, whether it's from reading or from the oral transmission, somebody reading out loud to a community or whatever it is, gets out. So at some level, I think this book tells us a little bit about how colonial states work and don't work, right?
1: Yeah, in particular, because a lot of the time when you look at the investigations around these cases, the people who are accused of spreading this dangerous news turned out to be civil servants of the colonial administration. Because the only people who can read, the only Muslims who can read French at the time are those who are employed by the state. There's not that many of them. And just like any other colonial government, the administration needs intermediaries. So ironically, it's the people that the colonial state kind of trains to be its best servants to end up causing the most disruption because they cause the most leakage of, of information.
2: The
0: third chapter of the book, Arthur, focuses on the outbreak of the First World War. And this is a chapter in which you really bring together those elements that we were talking about earlier, those forms of manuscript, rumor, and song with the transmission of information and news during this era of the First World War. So could you tell us what's going on there and what the argument is in that chapter?
1: The question in that chapter is whether people in a colonial society really lived at the same time. There's been a lot of discussion recently about different multiple temporalities and that if you live in a, in a colonial society in particular, well, there are certain vernacular temporalities that are characteristic of that society and that are not the same as European uh, temporality. I think there's some very interesting work that's comes out of that, but it's kind of led us into a bit of a problem. Because if we take the temporalities a bit too seriously, then what is our role as historians, Mm. which is a concern that I have. So I was trying to test this by looking at a very particular moment, the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, and seeing how different forms of news conveyed this and how they encoded it within different temporalities basically, the argument is that people in the summer of 1914 in Algeria did experience the same event, because they were literally in 1914 at the same time, but that the ways in which the news was transmitted allowed them to imagine that they were living in completely different worlds. Mm. For instance, one of the main sources that I analyze is a historical chronicle that was a manuscript that was written in Arabic which was found as part of an insurrection in 1914 against conscription. And that manuscript explains the beginning of the war between the French and the Germans as part of a much longer history of the French since the biblical times, You know their origins from the sons of Noah and so on and so forth, and all of the terrible mm-hmm. things that the French have done to Muslims. Uh, over the centuries. It's a very strange and interesting document that I could talk about for way too long. But the point (laughs) is that it has a very, very peculiar understanding of time. It's written, half of it is written in the future tense. It's very weird. And that manuscript was used to mobilize people in that region in an uprising against the French on the basis of that history and of the declaration of war in 1914. So it kind of uses this past and at the same time. Now the interesting thing is that while this is going on, the French uh, administrators that are investigating this because there's an insurrection say that this is a case of spreading of false news, colportage de fausses nouvelles, which is the legal term in mm. France. On the one hand, they mean factually wrong, but on the other, they mean a sort of improper, improper usage of news. News should be, you know, rational. Connected to the most recent events, and it should come from men reading newspapers alone in their, you know, living room over coffee. But that is really the kind of bourgeois imaginary of how it's working. The reason why I got particularly interested in the term uh, "false news" this was actually before the kind of fake news problem uh, became very uh, current was because of Marc Bloch. So Marc mm-hmm. Bloch, the historian, uh, wrote about false news. Uh, during the First World War that he witnessed mm-hmm. when he was in the trenches. And he uh, said that it kind of allowed him to understand a preliterate society, like in the Middle Ages, which is what he studied, and how you know you could have these kinds of irrational rumors. And it sort of was very formative to the development of his studies of mentalité uh, later on in the 1920s, and to so the development of the Annale School, and basically of cultural history, which is mm-hmm. something that I was broadly speaking, trained to do, and that is still quite normative in the way in which we teach history today. Now, the fun thing mm-hmm. that a lot, a lot of people don't know is that Marc Bloch was actually in Algeria for a few months during the First World War, and he worked as an intelligence officer in the repression of another insurrection in uh, the Ores in 1916. I don't think that this was especially formative for him. I'm not going to make this grand argument. You know, there's a whole genre <laughs> of things like, ha, this, you know, this, this French dude that you thought was important. Actually, he was in Algeria. It works with nearly all of them because <laughs> at some point they, they usually were in, in Algeria at some point or another. I'm not necessarily saying that this says something incredibly deep about Marc Bloch. M- maybe, maybe not. What it does show is that, historians are quite important to the categorization of what makes for legitimate or illegitimate relationships to time, and therefore legitimate or illegitimate relationships to news and what is real or false news.
0: It's a really fascinating chapter. The fourth chapter of the book, Arthur, Old Waves, Cinema, Radio, and Political Polarization in the 1930s. I mean, I think when people, well, especially when people think about the history of the Algerian war, they think of Cinema and radio play a, you know, a big role in how we remember those things, how we imagine those things, and, and the history of the war. I would never have thought about the news of the Spanish Civil War as having a kind of significance in 1930s Algeria and the emergence of mass political culture. So how does that work?
1: So the chapter tracks two developments. The first is the development of cinema starting in 1895 uh, with the invention by the Lumiere brothers and very quickly around 1910, 1912, newsreels. So people go to cinemas and one of the ways in which they find out about events is by watching them on a screen. This is very important because, of course, this means that it is accessible to people who are not literate. And it's even more dangerous before you have sound in cinemas because they can't read the titles, so they might understand something completely different. So this freaks out authorities a lot. So you get a lot of riots in cinemas. And then in the 1920s, but especially in the 1930s, you get the development of radio. Similarly, radio is set up primarily for uh, Europeans, but people start realizing that Muslims are actually listening to the radio. And then there's an interesting debate uh, that unfolds uh, within the people running Radio Alger, the only radio station in Algeria at the time, as to, well, how many programs should we have for Muslims? What kinds of programs should we be giving to them? So I kind of tell the history of of both of those um, and kind of borrowing in part from Rebecca Scales' work on, on the radio uh, and especially her very interesting article on, on the radio in Algeria. Mm-hmm. I suppose what's interesting is that these technologies that don't involve literacy in the same way as the newspaper does we might think of them as having this completely revolutionary impact. The impact they have is slightly more mitigated. First of all, because when it comes to the radio, for instance, people continue to listen to the news in the same place as before, which is the cafe. So before you would go and uh, somebody would read the newspaper out loud. Now maybe they would read the newspaper out loud and there was a radio post and somebody would translate what was in French for the rest. So in some ways it doesn't change that much changes to some extent because sometimes people have radios at home. And so uh, some women have more access to the radio because of domestic space, but you have to have electricity. It's very expensive. It's not that common at the
0: time. Well, just to sort of uh, respond to what you just brought up. It's something that, you know, I want to ask you in general about the book is the role that gender plays in this. So
1: news in general is very gendered not just in colonial Algeria, but especially in colonial Algeria, both for Europeans and for Muslims. This is not a time where European Mm -hmm. women uh, go out to cafes that much, Um, Muslim women even less so, but really it's not actually that different in some respects. European women typically can read, at least by the early 20th century, so they might have access to newspapers, and Muslim women very rarely can. So news is very gendered in that men are the ones that are expected to discuss the news and to have access to it. Now, in practice, it's a bit different. Partly, there's a source problem in that the surveillance reports I deal with very rarely talk about women and kind of assume that they don't Mm -hmm. know anything. But sometimes they do. There are particularly intriguing cases, for instance, with Muslim uh, domestic workers in European households Mm. also leaking information or kind of acting as kind of spies and then hearing overhearing something and similarly eavesdropping and then reporting it back to uh, their husbands. The extent to which this actually happened, possible, it's certainly a concern. What we see in the 1930s is the increasing political mobilization of women, European and Muslim, in a kind of party political moment that Algeria has at the time.
0: The fifth chapter of the book, Arthur, looks at well, two cases, Libya in the 1910s, and then Palestine, this sort of decade in Palestine from 1929 to 1939. And you look at, and the chapter's called Palestine the Martyr, and you look at the way that particular news stories become a route for people in Algeria to debate colonialism within Algeria, these news stories from away, and explore again, in this chapter, in a different way, in a distinct way, the relationship between news and questions of nationalism. So can you tell us a little bit about that? I
1: think we assume that people have nationalism first, and then they feel solidarity for other places. The chronological developments in Algeria tells a very different story, which is inversed, which is that Mm. Algerians are very concerned about faraway places at a time when nationalism is not that widespread yet, where demands for Algerian independence, in formal terms at least, are not that present in the interwar period. So what's interesting is the possibility that Algerians might have developed their nationalism in reaction, at least partly, to events that they saw happening further away. This is not to say that Algerians did not have these political desires before, but they weren't necessarily articulated in terms of wanting an independent nation-state, and that's the real difference. For instance, there's an Egyptian film that's very popular in the 1930s, and it has a hymn to the Egyptian flag. And there's a big problem because people start singing the hymn, apparently, uh, thinking that it's about the Algerian flag. And the Algerian flag does not exist. The Algerian flag gets invented uh, a bit later. So, so they're kind of singing in response to this flag that doesn't exist, and which is actually the Egyptians' own flag. And the Egyptians absolutely did not make the song for Algerians. So what I was interested mm. in this chapter is looking at the role that uh, news from uh, events, uh, particularly in Libya and in Palestine, had in allowing uh, Algerians to analyze and to clarify their own situation. And what's interesting when it comes to Palestine is that lots of different people in Algeria, whether it's European Catholics, uh, Algerian Jews, or Muslims, find events in Palestine so intriguing and so complicated to understand because they look incredibly familiar. Like the casting, you know, the sort of actors are quite similar. You know, you get European imperial power, which is Britain under the mandate. Uh, You have Jews, which are sort of appear to be Uh, allied with this uh, European imperial power, according to some, and Mm -hmm. you get uh, a a local population of Arabs who are largely imagined to be Muslims. There's not a whole lot of concern for Palestinian Christians in this imaginary. And so Mm. what I'm saying is that it's not like you believe in Algeria first and then you understand Palestine, Mm -hmm. is that actually the process of confronting yourself to the news of Palestine and trying to make sense of it is part of what leads to the development of a project for an Algerian nation.
0: Earlier in our conversation, Arthur, you were talking about how you decided not to work on the War of Independence, and you're interested in the colonial context. Uh, but the epilogue comes comes to the War of Independence, and you kind of reread Fanon's essay on the radio um, and look at the sort of relationship between things like metropolitan and local, and you know what is Algerian and what is from outside. And you're also looking at the question of continuity between this period that is the focus of the book and what will become the period of the war and the post-decolonization period. So could you talk about that issue of continuity and discontinuity and the the way that the work that you've done in this project illuminates some of the things that have been said about the period of the war?
1: So... I did, when I was writing the book, I was told by some of my reviewers, you know, you should add something about the independence war. And I actually am glad that they made me do that because I sort of had to think, well, what do I think is distinctively colonial about this? Mm. The interesting thing about Fanon's uh, essay on the radio is that he, so he has this very interesting observation on the way in which information practices are changing during the, the Algerian revolution. That's what he calls it. Revolution. And he thinks that this is the beginning of a national consciousness that is federating the Algerian people behind uh, the FLN, and that this is going to lead to a bright, new, shining Algeria. But what's interesting, I guess, is that some of the, the practices that Fanon are describing, first of all, are not exclusive to the independence war itself. So they start a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. So he says Algerians you know, crowd around the radio posts, and then one person interprets the news for everybody else. That already happens in the 30s. Algerians buy French newspapers even though they don't trust them because they want to figure stuff out. That happens at least since the 1830s, probably even before. So a lot of the things that Fanon are describing are very interesting, but they're actually not exclusive to the period he's describing. That's fine. He's not a historian. I'm not here to say, <laughs> I'm not here. There's there's not much point saying Fanon was, you know, empirically wrong about this or that. You know, what, what's the kind of interesting thing about that? I guess what's slightly more substantive about that is that Fanon expected that all of this would end and that the process of the revolution would lead to an independent Algeria where there was none of this friction with the news and Mm -hmm. where there would be a total unity between the government, the people and the media that meant that they would just trust the news. And a lot of this distrust and this friction continues in the post-independence period in Algeria, which is a period of extensive state control of information. Um, right. of lots of rumors and so on and so forth. Does this mean that the Algerian government is just like the colonial government? Absolutely not. Right. Does it mean perhaps that what was disturbing about the amount of friction and polarization that there was to do with news under the colonial period is not exclusively a problem of colonialism probably so that mm-hmm. actually to go back to what we were talking about earlier, colonial societies like Algeria under under French rule are distinctive, uh, but they're not necessarily that unique. And so the idea that you're going to get a place where everybody turns on the radio and says like, oh yeah, that's exactly it. And they all agree on what it means. What would that even <laughs> look like? It doesn't really make sense when you think about it. And the interesting thing about thinking about news is that it gives us a very different insight into how time works. Mm-hmm. And we've all had this experience, not necessarily every day when we turn on the eight o'clock news, sometimes you just hear something and it really kind of shakes you up and you feel mm-hmm. different. And that is kind of the surprise of news. And that's a diff- very different kind of temporality that I think is interesting to think through.
0: And what do you think Arthur about the timing of the appearance of your book in relationship to some of these questions? I'm, I'm always loath to be like, Tell me the lessons of history now, author. But it is true that your book, you know, appeared in 2019 at a moment when, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, that, you know, people were thinking about false news before there was this frenzy around fake news. But there is this kind of both wider public and scholarly interest in the questions of news and truth, of fake news, of how the world learns about different types of events. And in particular, so I'm thinking of that whole bundle of things and then also events in Algeria. And I just wonder if, as someone who works on these issues, 2019 as a moment for thinking about media and information in certain ways, and also as a very intense moment, obviously, um, in Algeria, whether you have some thoughts that you might want to share on those two kind of questions. Let's
1: start with the first one on how this fits into contemporary concerns about mm-hmm. I guess what it suggests is at times of rapid uh, technological change, which is what we've been experiencing with internet and social media, credibility and legitimacy become very unstable because it's not the same social actors who are responsible exactly for controlling access as before. And so this mm-hmm. creates a lot of uncertainty and panic. So that is something that was happening at the time and that happens now. And I think there's a reason why there's a lot of scholarship that's emerging around these issues. You might be thinking about Heidi Torek's recent book on uh, news from Germany. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. There's a number of historians uh, of which, of which I'd like to be a tiny little part of that are turning to, to these issues because partly I think it's also because certain movements in cultural history from the nineties in which discourse was very detached from any kind of material existence, a lot of historians are kind of turning against now. The other concern is with globalization. So the fact is that the more news has to travel across large amounts of distance, and the more events that happen really far away, like a bombing in Syria, affect American political developments, you have to be able to trust that chain. Um, and it's, and there comes to be a lot of anxiety around how that process unfolds and whether it's telling us the correct things about the world, should we be paying more attention to this or to that? And it's fascinating watching the amount of controversies erupt around this, you know, like, oh, Mm -hmm. why do so many people care about, you know, bombings in Paris, but not about this and this and that.
0: There's so much news about the news. There's
1: so much news about the news, but, but it's part, and think it's because people have a very... People uh, are not given the tools to critically understand the news media. They mm-hmm. don't understand how the news sausage is made. And they think that journalists are you know, these amazing kind of omniscient things that know everything about the world and that prepackage it in exactly <laughs> the right way. And the point is, journalists are just part of a really complicated chain. Another interesting contemporary element that I was thinking a lot about when I was writing the book was the idea in France that events in the Middle East were contaminating uh, French social relations. So in 2014, for instance, because of events in Gaza, uh, there were disrupt, there there was um, demonstrations in Paris that that got a bit violent. And the president says, well, the problem is that we're having an importation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in French society. That language Mm -hmm. is exactly the same that is used at the time in Because Mm -hmm. what that means is it has nothing to do with us in France. Now it has nothing to do with the French Republic and the way in which it treats Jews and Muslims and the way in which it manages those, those relationships. No, it's coming from outside. It's the, it's the news from outside that's contaminating people and that's polarizing them. And that's kind of having this electrifying Mm -hmm. effect. When it comes to uh, Algeria recently, it's been interesting I had already finished writing the book and it had gone uh, out to publication when the Harak started in uh, February 2019 against President Bouteflika and then against the system more more broadly. And what's interesting is that there there was a very brief but intense international interest in events in Mm -hmm. Nigeria. And so I started getting emails and phone calls uh, from different media outlets, largely at the radio. I don't know. I guess I must have a nice voice, but not a nice face. I, I, not true. And then I, <laughs> I I had to respond to these. Um, some, most of them I turned down, but that's not the point. But the point is I witnessed this sudden interest and acceleration of events that was incredibly exciting. Mm. And suddenly things started to thicken and everything became possible and everybody was really interested in that. And in a way, it was a very kind of like almost ethnographic experience for me of like, oh, this is what happens when a news event kind of bubbles up. And when some people get interested in somewhere in the world that they don't know very much about, to the extent that they'll call up even somebody like me who, you know, in practice, I mainly know about dead people who aren't around them. (laughs) And and within Algeria, this sense of acceleration and of distrust in existing media and their ability to Mm -hmm. carry these things was very, very noticeable. Uh, that the state television in particular was not trusted, the radio a bit more, but that most of this was happening uh, on social media, which is interesting because it kind of goes back to some earlier trends, which is that in some ways, the best place to get your news is to discuss it with people you already know and trust, like in a cafe. And and social media replicates some of those trends, which suggests that it might not be as new as what we think.
0: I don't want to open up a whole can of worms here. Well, maybe I do. (laughs) But... (laughs) But... (laughs) I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I found myself thinking about Habermas. Oh, right. Yeah. And so I just wonder in all of the things that I now think after reading your book about, you know, media theory, media history, how we understand what news is, how we understand things like print capitalism. That was the other thing that I thought about is like, how is this book changing my ideas about such that as they are about the public sphere? Do you want to say anything about that?
1: It's interesting because when I was writing the book, I didn't think about this at all. And then since then, I've had to teach Habermas a few times. So I've been asking myself the same question, and I'm not sure I've entirely figured it out. I guess what looking at a society like colonial Algeria would confirm is what a lot of critics have said about Habermas, which is that the kind of unified public sphere that he described never really existed. So I think mm-hmm. feminist critiques in this respect have been very interesting, saying that you know the, the, the public sphere that he's describing is always very gendered. Mm-hmm. And I think in this respect, uh, colonial societies suggest the same, that actually the kind of classical liberal bourgeois modernity was really split. Um, mm-hmm. And, and it only appeared like that to such a very particular kind of, of man.
0: So Arthur, one last question. What are you working on now?
1: I'm working on two projects. The first is actually something that I had to cut out of the book on a particular individual that proved too interesting and, and too strange, <laughs> who was a, an interpreter for the, the French colonial state and Algerian interpreter of the late 19th century who was an extremely talented manipulator of information and fictionalist and who constantly produced fake information in order to get his particular political agenda across. And he became very famous in France at one point. He went on an expedition to West Africa. It's a very exciting uh, and kind of colorful story. Let's put it that way. So I'm trying Mm. to figure out uh, how to write a book about this particular man, Miss Saoudjibari. And then the longer term research project tries to take the book a bit forward in time after the independence of Algeria into metropolitan France in the 1960s and 70s. And looking Mm. at the relationship between rumors, which I find very interesting and which sort of got interested in by researching this book, rumors and the creation of racial categories in France after uh, the
0: disappearance of the empire. Wow, those both sound like really exciting projects. And I hope you'll keep me posted. Arthur, I just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book.
1: Thank you so much. This was really, really fun.
0: You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.